All right, so as you see there, we are in a series called Reboot, where we are talking about fresh perspectives and clean slates. And for those of you that are watching online, I'm Pastor Brian Foreman, and welcome to Cornerstone Community Church. For you watching online and for everybody here, I want to remind you to check in. You can use the card that is in your growth guide, or you can use the app, or you can go online to cornerstonenh.org here. And we would love to know that you are here so that we can stay in touch with you. Uh, remember the kind of the premise of this series is between now and Easter of this year, we want to kind of reboot your faith. We want you to have fresh, fresh perspectives, so we're going to be talking about some different things along the way that hopefully will be helpful to you, and clean slates. What does it mean to have a reboot, to have a fresh start? Today, we're going to be talking about something that really, uh, ever since I heard this phrase, it has dramatically and helpfully impacted my life when it comes to decision making. Uh, how many of you in the last month or so, maybe right now, have faced a pretty major decision? Anyone? Okay. Some major decisions out there. Every day we are faced with some various decisions, and it's always helpful to have some kind of guiding principles that are going to help you to make these decisions. And I think what we're going to be talking about today will help you make good decisions, and you will find this helpful in making decisions as you go forward. The name of today's message is not what, but who. And the question that we're asking is this. When seeking direction, am I asking the wrong question? When seeking direction, am I asking the wrong question? Uh, as I said, this little phrase jumped out to me when I was listening to another pastor. And he wasn't even using it in exactly this context, but it really stuck with me. And it's been very helpful in making decisions. So often when we go and make decisions, because the, uh, uh, what are we doing? We're, we're determining our direction, and that's what we're talking about today, is our direction. Then um, often it's the, a kind of a what question. It's what job should I take? What house should I buy? Uh, and so there are often a lot of questions that come up, and we're thinking about the what. And the question that we need to ask sometimes is not what, but who. And we'll, ex we'll explain that, and we'll explore that a little bit. But that's the bottom line, if you're taking notes in the growth guide, is the bottom line is ask not what, but who. Not what, but who. Now, I'm going to give you the main points. Don't try to write them down. I'm going to go way too fast, and we're going to come back around to it. But we're going to look at it this from three different perspectives. We're going to look at it from the family perspective. And in your family, we want to prioritize the ones for whom you're the only one. We're going to look at it in a work perspective. And we're going to say, at work, look for the who behind what you do. And we're also going to talk about it in our church setting. And that is to recognize at church, you may be there more for who's there than what's there. You may be here for more, more for who is here than what is here. So with that in mind, what I'm going to challenge you to do, and this will be the next step challenge, is it fits into our overarching idea of serving, and that is to identify the who for everything that you do. Identify the who for everything you do. We're going to ask not what, but who. This point is made in this passage. It's Luke chapter 13, 
verses 10 to 17. I'm going to read it to you from the New Living Translation, and you can follow along if you like. Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 10. One day, one Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. Then he touched her, and instantly she could stand up straight. How she praised God. But the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. There are six days of the week for working, he said to the crowd. Come on those days to be healed, but not on the Sabbath. Verse 15, but the Lord replied, you hypocrites, each of you works on the Sabbath day. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water? This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? This shamed his enemies but all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things he did. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you would speak to us. We believe that your Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures, that your Holy Spirit is present and active in our lives as your followers, that you are here to speak to us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would do exactly that that each of us would hear what we need to hear from today's message and that you would give us the courage and strength to act on it so that we might experience the blessings that you have in mind for us. So we thank you for this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go through this and we're asking not what but who, I'm going to walk you through this scripture and then we're going to come back around to those different arenas of life where we can apply this principle of asking not what but who. Now, you might have noticed there's been kind of a theme that's developed over this um, the series where we've been talking actually a lot about the Sabbath. We started in creation and we kind of went from there and we talked about this verse, Mark 2.27. Then Jesus said to them, this was another, uh, another, another conflict that happened on the Sabbath and this was Jesus' summary statement. The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So you can already kind of see how that constant conflict over the rule keeping in the Sabbath caused conflict with the people. And the root of it is, is are we going to be rule followers or are we going to be focused on people? And so that theme has kind of kept up with this passage as well. So let's look at it together. It's on the Sabbath. Well, Sabbath day, Jesus was teaching in a synagogue. And then while he's there, he sees a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. Now, this message is not about that, but since it's mentioned here, I wanted to at least address it. Now, that does not say, and not every time do you see sickness in the scriptures, is it associated with some kind of evil spirit. But for whatever reason, we know from this passage that there was a spiritual dimension to what was going on with this person. Now, that doesn't mean every sickness is like that, but it can happen. I kind of look at it from this perspective. Our world is broken, 
And that brokenness is reflected in a lot of different interconnected ways. The only reason that there is sickness and death in our world is because evil has entered into our world because of humanity's sin. So is, it, is every sickness attributable to an evil spirit? Of course not. Can that be an interplay of evil with sickness and disease and manifest itself in those ways? Evidently, absolutely. But the other thing about this is, uh, and this was a good point that a commentator brought out, by pointing out that Jesus is overcoming not only her physical malady, but the evil spirit that's behind it, he's showing that he has power and authority over both the physical realm and the spiritual realm. So just wanted to cover that since it came up. We go on with the story. Jesus saw her. He called her over. Dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. Now, it says, goes on to say that she was overjoyed. Of course, she would be, right? But notice the response of the synagogue leaders. The leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. And he goes on to explain his indignancy. Is that a word? Uh, There are six days of the week for working, he said to the crowd, come on those days to be healed, not on the Sabbath. Now, the constant conflict that Jesus was having over the Sabbath, and in fact, that the whole thing where he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, he ends that with a summary statement that says, and the Son of Man, talking about himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, that is a mind-blowing statement. What he's saying is, I get to choose what accurately observing the Sabbath looks like. And if you see the pattern that developed and the conflicts that he encountered over the Sabbath, it was almost always because he was choosing to do good to and for people rather than keeping arbitrary laws. Now, for us, that seems very obvious, but let me give you a little bit of background as to where the Pharisees and the the leaders that he was uh, encountering difficulty were coming from. It it might help it to make sense, and you can probably understand that if you were in that situation, you would probably be a little bit concerned about that as well. The whole history of the people of Israel is that God had given them this covenant. God had said to them, if you, if you keep my covenant, things will go well for you. If you break my covenant, if you're unfaithful to me as your God, then things will not go well. And then, that's, so that's the first part. Then you have a history of things not going well, where they knew the right thing to do, and they chose the wrong thing to do. And so rather than just letting the hammer down right away, God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to warn the people to say, look, this is the deal. You do right by me, things will go well. If you uh, don't, then things are going to go poorly. You're on, you're on the edge. The, the hammer is about to fall. You better turn around. You better change your ways over and over. That's the prophets. Then they still don't change their ways. And as a result, their country is destroyed. People die in horrific ways. The people that are left are often uprooted from their homes and carried off to foreign lands in exile. And now they finally are back in their land. Now, if you were in that situation, what would you do? You would make darn sure you were following the rules, 
right? Because you wouldn't want that to happen. And you're already on the edge. It's not like they have their own country. They are still under Roman rule. They want to be freed. And so they did what some scholars call building a wall around the law. In other words, they were going to define to the nth degree, this is what keeping the law looks like, and this is what not keeping the law looks like. These are the things that are acceptable. These are the things that are not acceptable, because we want to make sure that we're staying inside the boundaries, because we don't want to get stomped again. So that's what's going on. That was the motivation behind that. But they lost the point of those laws which is care and concern for people. Why did God give his law? As a blessing. What did he call the people of, the, uh, of his ancient covenant to? To be a blessing to all of the nations, to the entire world. But they lost track of that in the rule keeping. So that's what's going on here. They were in essence asking not who, who do, who's here, who needs help, Who's crippled and needs to be healed? Whose needs can we meet? They were saying, what are we allowed to do or not allowed to do? We're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, so it doesn't matter what's going on with that person. That would be work, and God wouldn't be happy with that. They're missing the point, but you can understand how they would. So in order to explain this to them, Jesus comes around and says this. Uh, You know, he's, he's trying to be gentle with them. You hypocrites, <laughs> each of you works on the Sabbath day. He's going to draw a comparison from the lesser to the greater to show them how they've kind of missed the point. So he starts with the lesser. He says, don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water. What are you doing? You, you, have, you have your animals, it's the Sabbath, but they're still thirsty. They, they're, they're, they still need to be watered. And so you untie them, you lead them. All of these things could be considered working, but they do it because they're caring for their animal, their ox or their donkey. Comparison from the lesser to the greater. So he says, this dear woman... This woman who, who sits among you week after week, you've known her, you've, you're familiar with her suffering, and you know that it, she has been suffering for a long time. She's not just your animal that's thirsty, she is your sister, a dear sister, a daughter of Abraham who has been held in bondage, she's been tied up to this sickness for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released, even if it happens to be the Sabbath. And in fact, maybe especially because it's the Sabbath, because the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. So instead of asking what, they should have been asking who. Ask not what, but who. Now, this ties in with Jesus' overall teaching, and I just want to slide this in. We've talked about before the new commandment. This is in John 13, 34, where Jesus, as he's getting ready to go to the cross, tells his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And again, one of our core values is being others-centered, 
That's our way of talking about love and our care and concern for one another. Now, uh, for those of you that have been around a while, this is a little test. What is new about this new commandment? Because loving one another is not exactly groundbreaking or earth-shattering or new to the people he was talking to. That was straight from their Old Testament tradition. What's new about this? Anybody remember? Say it again. Anybody? It's not the command. It's the standard. Exactly right, Elizabeth. As I have loved you. What he's saying is, you've heard that it was said to love one another, but I'm going to give you a new command, not just love one another, but love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes to the cross, he lays down his life for his friends, and he calls us his friends. So what does that teach us? That teaches us that love, which we use about loving our wives and loving ice cream, loving pizza, and loving our family. There's a wide range there that we include in that uh, semantic domain is what translators call it. Uh, and what he's saying is true love is love that is other-centered. It's more concerned about how can I leverage what I have for the benefit of others, even if it costs me. It's a selfless, self-sacrificial love. That's the new in this new commandment. And so he's trying to shift their attention from the rule-keeping to being concerned about others. And we see this in the great commandment as well. Love the Lord your God. Oh, and also love your neighbor as yourself. Do you want to know if you love your neighbor? Uh, then uh, if you want to know if you love God, then are you loving your neighbor? And when you want to love God, you love your neighbor. Are you loving your neighbor? Then you are loving God. It's one commandment. They are two sides of the same coin. So the emphasis is changing from not what, but who. So let's talk about how this would flesh itself out in our daily lives. Let's talk about our family. Um, and here's the point, and if you're taking notes, now's the time to write this down. In your family, prioritize the ones for whom you're the only one. When uh, you know, ministry especially can be especially demanding interpersonally, especially for a person like me who's an introvert, I've only got so much bandwidth, and it's not much. <laughs> but um, this was very helpful to me because, um, you know, as believers, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are going to spend eternity together. But there are certain roles that I have that are unique to me or unique to the relationship. And it helped me to realize that I need to prioritize those roles. My kids are only going to have one father. Uh, that, that is a unique role that I have in a very select few people's lives. And so I need to prioritize that. Sue Ellen is only going to have one husband for now. I mean, I'm assuming that, <laughs> uh, you know, that that's, that's just the way that it is. So I'm going to prioritize that. Uh, and if you are in family relationship with someone else, 
then there's only one of you. You might say, oh, well, I'm only one of three brothers. There's only one of you. And you are unique. You are special in that relationship. And it's a role that only you can play. And so it helps me when I'm decision-making about what to do to recognize that I need to prioritize those ones, those who's, for whom I'm the only one. Recently, we looked at this passage from Genesis 1.27 that says, God created human beings in his own image. In his image, he created them, male and female, he created them. And we talked about how uh, that's especially important in the context of the marriage relationship because, and parenting because in order to accurately reflect the image of God, you need both mother and father. And so my job, this is the most transformational idea about parenting that I uh, came to realize. My job as a parent is to reflect the father, God, to my children. Because children need... Children are very concrete thinkers, right? They're not abstract thinkers. And so what they do is they learn what God is like by interacting with their parents. That's a pretty heavy responsibility, isn't it? But, but that's, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to image, we're supposed to reflect God to our family. And this is reflected all throughout the family relationships. Parents are teaching children what God is like. Uh, in the New Testament, Paul says that the marriage relationship is supposed to mirror or image the relationship of Christ with the church. It's all reflective of that. And notice that when Jesus was trying to teach people what the relationship that they had with God is like, how did he describe it? Well, it's in the first line of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven. Of all, the, of all the, the human relationships, of all the parallels, of all the metaphors that he could have used to describe our relationship with the creator God, he chose our father. So there are people in your life for whom you're the only one, and you need to prioritize those relationships. It's a way of asking not what, but who. Let's look at it in the work situation. At work, look for the who behind what you do. Uh, this is not an uncommon experience, but I was in the line talking to somebody that was working. She had uh, just come on to the, her shift, and so I was asking her, well, how long are you going to be here? You know, what, what's your shift today, um, et cetera? And she's like, yeah, I'm going to be here for about four hours but it's not that bad. In other words, you know, the, the impression that I was getting was, yeah, this is something I have to do. I'm not really excited to be here. I, I wish I didn't have to be here. I wish that it was a shorter time period, but it's only four hours. I'll be free in a little while. That's a miserable way to work, to be honest with you. But think about this. What if you could change the perspective and look for the who behind what you do? I was very thankful for that person being there because that meant that I could get my stuff and go. Uh, how many of you have been in a situation where you got something, you need something, you go to the checkout line, 
and there's like one or two lines open and one or 200 people waiting in those lines, would you be thankful to have another who or two in those lines? Absolutely. And so when you recognize that there is a who behind everything that you do, then that adds meaning. It adds purpose to what you are doing at work. I remember reading an article way back when I was in college in Discipleship Journal. Anybody familiar with Discipleship Journal? Remember that? Um, and it was talking about how we pray for our food before we eat it. You know, usually that's the habit in a Christian household. Thank you, Lord, for this food. And then you think back to, okay, well, how did that food get there? All the people along the way, the people in the grocery store, the people driving the trucks, the people who were loading up packaging, working in, in the factory. They say you can trace it back to somebody who was probably making pallets. And if you're making pallets, you might feel like that's an insignificant, kind of low-rung job. But if you look at it in this context, not the who, but not, the, not what you do, but the who behind it, Every time you build that pallet, you are doing something for which perhaps thousands of people will thank God when they sit around the table with their family. It will make a huge difference in the way that you look at your work if you look for the who behind what you do. And I think that's the heart behind what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 3.23 when he said, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Like even if, you, even if you're serving and you're, you don't think, oh, the people are not really crazy about them, but you're, you are serving the Lord and you're fulfilling his purposes. You're doing something that probably somebody is thanking God for. So look for that who behind what you do. That ties into the theme of asking not what but who. Let's look at it in our church setting, and this is how we'll wrap it up. Recognize, at church, you may be there more for who's there than what's there. You may be here more for who's here than what's here. When people look for a church, there are certain things. There are a lot of what's that they're looking for, right? They're looking for, you know, uh, the preacher, the music, the the uh, ministries that are there, there's a lot of what that goes into it. You've got your shopping list. There are certain things that you want when you're looking for a church. What if you change that perspective and you realized that while there's content, perhaps the most important thing is community and that you may be there more for who is going to be there than what happens to be there. Now, the, I, I don't, I'm not denigrating the value of the what. We try to provide a lot of good what's. In every church that I know, they try to provide a lot of good what's. But it's not just content. It's not just preaching. It's not just the music. It's not just those ministries. It's the who. It's the community that you need and that you get. There are some people that came here today and they were glad to see you. They were excited to see you. They get to interact with you. And this is maybe the one time of the week where they get, have that opportunity. They're looking forward to that. 
And maybe you're debating about, you know, well, is it worth it? Should I stay? Could I, I could stay and watch online. I could catch it on a podcast later. Well, yes, you could do all of those things. But if you have the opportunity to be there in person, it's much more about you being there for the other who's that are here than the what you will get out of it. I may not always be a pastor. I love pastoring. I have no plans to not be a pastor and to be a pastor of Cornerstone. But if that were to change and I were to go someplace else and had to look for a church, I would be looking for how can I contribute? Where can my gifts, my abilities, the things that God has given me be best leveraged for the benefit of the kingdom of God? Who are the who's that God wants me to serve? Not where can I get, go to get the best what's out of the experience. And I would encourage you to think about church and make decisions based on church in kind of the same way. Sometimes it's more important for you to show up because who is going to be here and who you can interact with than what you're going to get out of it. The what you're going to get out of it might be more wrapped up in the who's that you interact with. That's why, among other things, I'm going to always encourage you to show up on a regular basis. Uh, when people come into a church, they're looking for other people to connect with. And if you've stayed home on option that week, then they're missing out and you're missing out on that as well. Recognize you may be here, you may be there at your church for who's there more than what's there. And that also ties into the idea of serving, that we show up to serve one another. And Jesus reflected this in what he said in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man, again, talking about himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He showed up not to be served, but to serve. And then later in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, I think, quotes Jesus. The interesting thing about this quote, it's found nowhere in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it was evidently a saying that they knew that Jesus said, it is better to give than to receive. Show up to give as well as receive. So today we're talking about direction. What have we said? We have said that we ask not what, but who. And so I'm going to challenge you to serve, to identify in everything that you do the who that is behind it. Think about your family. Who are those ones for whom you're the only one? Think about your workplace. What is the who behind what you do? Think about your church. Who is it important for you to be there for as opposed to what you are going to receive? Some practical next steps, and these are outlined on the bottom of your check-in card, and I've started putting them in, in the growth guide as well. These are the steps that make up what it means to be a part of Cornerstone, participating membership in Cornerstone. We encourage everyone to serve on a team. Now, you'll see in your growth guides, there's a little box that says you can go to cornerstonenh.org serve. There you will see a variety of the different teams that are available. Find a place where you can contribute in your church. Also, showing up, worshiping together weekly. You might be here. You might be needed here on a particular Sunday because of somebody else 
that is going to show up, the interactions that you're going to have in person here or even online. So make it a priority to worship together weekly. And then lastly, the who that we are ultimately here for, just like that passage that said, serve as to the Lord and not just people, is for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm always going to encourage you to say yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord. He showed up for us. That's the, that's the John 13, 34. Love one another as I have loved you. How did he love? He went to the cross and died, gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins so that we could say yes to him as Savior. And then he was raised to life, exalted to the right hand of God. He is Lord. He's master of the universe. He is the one who is in charge and in control, and we owe him our lives and our worship. That's what it means to say yes to him as Lord. So if you are doing those things, I give you an opportunity to circle those uh, words in your, on your connection card, on your check-in card. If you're doing it online, you can do the same thing. Just click that box, but it's just another way for you to emphasize and say, I'm going to take that next step I'm going to prioritize the who's over the what's. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that um, you prioritized us. That uh, you could have said, yep, they've blown it. They've blown it over and over again. I gave them warnings. I gave them clear direction. And they still chose to run away to walk in rebellion. But you loved us. You sent your son to die for us. You prioritized us. And Lord, we want to reflect you accurately to the world by doing the same kind of thing, by never losing track of the who's behind our what's. So Lord, speak to us as I prayed earlier. Show each one of us exactly what we need to hear from what we have heard today, how we need to apply it, and then give us the strength, power, to follow through to prioritize the who's over the what's. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, just a reminder that the live it out, being able to circle up and talk about it is an important part. We continue the children's ministry, so you don't have to rush off for that. Uh, reminders of some of the things I said last week. Don't make the group too big. Six to eight is probably a good circle because you want to include everybody. And that's the second point, include everybody. If they're in the service, they should be participating in the discussion. So make sure that people who are on the fringes, maybe the younger people, all have an opportunity to contribute. Draw them in. And remember, the point of the discussion is not to get through the questions as good as they are, but to have a great discussion. So please take advantage of that. I love you guys. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you later.